welcome to Launch, the GCC podcast. I'm your host, Marty Duran, Director of Communications for the Great Commission Collective. We're a global network of churches partnering together to plant churches and strengthen leaders. On today's episode of Launch, I'm joined by Dave Harvey, President of Great Commission Collective, and Daniel Yang from the SEND Institute at Wheaton College in a wide-ranging conversation about church planting across many different landscapes. It's a fascinating conversation. Uh, I think you'll be blessed by it and encouraged by it as well. When you're done, don't forget to recommend it to some folks. And if you haven't subscribed in your favorite podcatcher already, please take some time to do that. And if you're on one of the biggies like Apple Podcasts or something like that, take a few minutes to rate and review. Helps in search results. And we hope that people that are looking for church planting content will be able to find a launch with not too much trouble. So now here's the conversation between myself, Dave Harvey, and Daniel Yang. Hello, again. Uh, hello, everyone. Again, it's good to be with you. This is Marty Duran. I'm the Director of Communications for Great Commission Collective, and I am happily joined today uh, by our President, Dave Harvey, and Daniel Yang, who is the Director of the SEND Institute, and uh, he's joining us. Are you in Wheaton today, Daniel? Um, I'm in Aurora, actually, where I live, but yep, not too far from Wheaton. Okay. I'm glad you specified that that was still in uh, Illinois because I, I really don't know the layout up there, so that's good to know. And Dave, you are in Florida, um, the land of sunshine and eternal bliss, and it's good to have you. 82 degrees today. Bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys know each other. Uh, Dave, why don't you um, begin and lead off, and then we'll just kind of roll with it. Yeah. Well, thanks, Marty. Uh, Daniel, it's great to have you with us. I mean, I've really been looking forward to talking. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I really appreciate what you all are doing. I'm a big fan of uh, GCC and uh, work with some of your local church planners here in Chicago. So appreciative to, and, and honored to be on. So, Daniel, most people who are familiar with your name associate you with church planting, which is, is logical. You planted a church. You're the director of Send Institute. You've got a podcast with with Ed. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those things and tell us about your role as as director of Send Institute? Sure. Yeah. When we started the Send Institute uh, a little bit under four years ago, it would have been in July 2017. Uh, and as Marty said, it's uh, in Wheaton, housed out of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. Um, the idea really was uh, between Ed Setzer and Jeff Christofferson, who are the co-founding executive directors, when they brought me on to launch it, it was the idea of how do we serve those who serve church planters specifically as the um, cultural shifts in North America can continue to happen at a very you know fast rate. So everything from uh, the demographic shifts that we've seen over the last 40 years to also the way that people perceive church, people perceive uh, the gospel, how do we help uh, church planning leaders think better about these things? And then also um, some of it involves uh, research in church planting. Uh, we think about best practices when it comes to launching churches and engaging people with the gospel. Uh, but then a lot of that is primarily so that we can convene those uh, like you all, like you, Dave and Marty, who are leading church planting organizations, networks, denominations, bringing you together to think about the future together. So, uh, you know, overall, it's a, we're focused on North America. It's a think tank for church planting, and it's been a, it's been a great time. And we're grateful for your work. Mm -hmm. um, so you're obviously embedded in the world of church planting. And uh, what, what I'm always curious about when I interact with people that have the kind of roles that you occupy is 
is just where did this begin for them? Like, like Daniel, take us back all the way back to the moment or to the season where you realized that church planting was something that you wanted to give your life to. Like, how did you become captivated by church planting? Yeah, man. I, you know, it's, it's such a, uh, a great story to share, you know, how God just kind of blindsided me with this because I, my training, uh, Growing up uh, was, or, or you know, my young young adult years were, I was actually an engineer, so I was uh, in my local church in Detroit. Professionally, vocationally, I was uh, an engineer consulting uh, in technology, software. Uh, but I had grown up in an ethnic church, you know, kind of quote-unquote ethnic church. It was an immigrant church, and uh, but the more that I was uh, connecting with my neighbors and coworkers and sharing the gospel with them, I realized that um, you know, our our immigrant church had a, a limited ability to to disciple those who are outside of the culture, and so that was really um, an early uh, engagement into thinking. Okay, Lord, what does it mean for me then to live missionally? So, back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, I began asking some of those questions again. I was a dad, I was uh, a leader in the church, um, but I was also just, um, you know, a, a lay lay minister. And my wife and I had been uh, reading some books. And um, long story short, got connected with a guy named Bob Roberts Jr. Uh, and uh, I asked Bob and uh, Alan Hirsch to come out and do a, a retreat for about 70 um, uh, up-and-coming leaders. This would have been back in 2008. Again, still just an engineer, uh, local church guy, um, but uh, Bob and Alan were both gracious enough to come out. And it was really uh, spending some time with them that they helped me to understand um, that um, really it is not just about um, being you know, a, a good church for the people that are closest to you, but it's how do you take a missionary position uh, in the uh, context that you were placed in. And that actually gave me a, a permission to kind of reimagine my whole narrative as my parents came here in 1979 as uh, immigrants from Laos. They were refugees. And I, I really, Dave, really began to see myself as, man, God sovereignly has sent uh, my family here as missionaries to North America. Um, and so it was a call to missions. It was a call to, to reimagine like God's sovereignty in my life. And then church planning became the natural expression because I started thinking, well, you know, I I, I don't want to just uh, assimilate into a majority culture church, but I also know how difficult it's going to be to assimilate others into our immigrant church. So what does it mean to start churches that are reaching different kinds of people? Uh, I don't think I had the vocabulary for that, but as we were starting our first church plant in Detroit, uh, that really became what it was. And then over time, the Lord really grew that passion. Uh, Bob Roberts asked me to come on staff with him. So in 2010, I moved down to Dallas and came on staff. And if anybody knows Bob Roberts Jr., it's kind of like He's a whirlwind, and he is—he's apostolic, and he's going wherever God's taking him, whether that's you know to the Middle East or to Afghanistan somewhere. And um, that really opened my eyes to not just church planting, but what does it mean to what is the church? Uh, what does it mean for the church to be a missionary to the world? And and so it, I've just been captivated by by all of that, and especially the kingdom of God. So then you planted in Toronto, is that correct? That's right. Yep. So after my three years with Bomb, he sent me out to plant a church in downtown Toronto. We planted a beautiful church called Trinity Live Church. Uh, spent five years there. 
the guy who planted with me, Mike Seaman, Mike and Missy Seaman, his wife, they're both leading the church now. And uh, it's a man urban. In Canada, you don't really say multi-ethnic because it just is, you know, uh, especially in that context. But, uh, you know, we would we would say it's a multi-ethnic urban downtown church. Uh, and uh, we saw some incredible things happen, and they continue to do some really neat things. Planting churches, it was a multiplying church, and we, we miss it. I met Mike and Missy uh, on a trip to uh, the West Bank about two and a half years ago. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They spent a lot of time there in uh, West Bank, Bethlehem area. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's cool. You guys have that connection. So, you know, Daniel, while you were, while you're talking, you know, I'm thinking back to my own experience in in just coming alive to the subject of church planting and and i remember when i began studying church planting there were so there were very few books on it uh, i remember being in the in the seminary in the 90s and it was it was just like a little alcove it was like a niche um and and now it seems to enjoy a a broad respectability and a, a growing urgency across many denominations. And, and that was not something that I expected. And, and so I'm, I'm curious for you, you know, what are some things that you are seeing uh, across the church planting world or the church planting landscape that you never expected to see? And, and you, you can confine that just to the last five years, 10 years, but what are some things that have surprised you? Yeah, yeah, Dave, I agree with you, you know, and I, I was probably maybe a little bit behind you in terms of like my entry into church planting, but probably right around the uh, 2000s, 2010s, I mean, we, we saw, I mean, especially in the 2000s, just a lot of youth pastors like leave to plant churches and, you know, just a lot of associate pastors and seminarians jump into church planting. And I think there was almost like a pendulum shift where it was kind of like, you know, church planting became like the really cool thing to do. And there was a lot of like emphasis on it. And and then people were kind of, but you know, that was after, like you were saying, after, you know, 40s and 50 years of kind of the church planter was the one who couldn't get a full-time ministry job. So they had to do something else, you know? Um, and, um, but then what I'm seeing over the last, you know, let's, let's just say, let's go back to about 2010, uh, the last 10 years is that I've seen in some ways the normalization of church planting and how, you know, I, I say it this way to folks, like for the first time that I can recall, like church planting, and it's still not there yet, but it's almost as normalized as you would say, you know, your foreign missions program or or maybe even, you know, it's, it's definitely not as normalized as like your youth ministry program. But I think there is a sense in which most churches have really thought about, okay, if we want to do local missions, if we want to see new communities reached, if we want to be really serious about, you know, contextual expressions of the body of Christ that will last into the future, then we need to take ownership in our own neighborhood, in our own communities, in churches who are actually owning that without without it being a trendy thing. It's just kind of a natural thing. I think that's been the big shift. I think there was a there was definitely a big flywheel that was going on in the early 2000s that helped to create that. Um, and I think that more and more that's become normalized. And then the second thing that I'm starting to see uh, more and more over the last 10 years is, you know, for a long time and still so, but I mean, uh, especially in the last 40 years, there was a great emphasis on the maverick church planter, the really, you know, gung-ho, uh, get her done types like uh, and that was kind of the profile for the ideal church planter 
And it's not so much that we don't need entrepreneurial types or, or um, you know, uh, high-level leaders, but I am starting to see a, um, a flattening of leadership and a team leadership model. When I planted in, in Toronto, we had a team leadership model. Um, as a matter of fact, over the last 10 years, I don't think I've met a church planter that called himself uh, Lee or, you know, a senior pastor, like even that title of senior pastor has kind of like somewhat dwindled. You might still have lead pastor, but it's not uncommon that somebody's a lead pastor over vision or preaching, lead pastor over ministries. You'll see that lead position spread across multiple people. Um, and I don't think that that's unbiblical at all. Uh, and I think that that, that flatter leadership structure to engage a community uh, actually is something that, um, you know, is trending in a positive thing. Because we all know that the lone maverick church planter that parachutes in and just kind of bites the bullet and does whatever is necessary, that there's a high increase of burnout. There's a high increase of, um, you know, failure rate uh, because that's a lot to put on one person. So those are those are two things that I've seen over the last 10 years that I think are positive. Yeah, I think in the 90s and in the early 2000s, you know, in, in the world of networks or denominations, it was more customary where church planting did take place for churches to want to plant out to wherever the guy wanted to go or across the globe or just in some distant vicinity. One of the shifts that seems to be taking place is, is that there's a growing desire among churches to plant locally. You know, they want to, inv- you were talking about ownership in our neighborhood. And, and one of the ways that seems to be taking place in the church planting world is that the, uh, the, the national and international isn't necessarily being de-emphasized. It's just being uh, expressed in other ways. And, and churches want to plant and reach their region, reach their city. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm sure Center Church, uh, Keller's, you know, teaching, things like that have had a profound effect on people. I'm just wondering, you know, is that something you're, you're seeing as well in your circles? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, and you, you hit on a a very important uh, phenomena that I think is gaining more and more uh, uh, traction. And it's not that city-based networks didn't exist before, but I think, again, the emphasis and the development and maturity of city-based networks is, is very important now. When I say city-based network, I mean, this would be, um, you know, multiple streams of churches, denominations coming together so that they can build an ecosystem where more churches can get planted. And that, I mean, whether it's in, you know, Phoenix with Surge Network or Houston with Houston Church Planning Network here in Chicago with Chicago Church Planning Alliance, you know, you, you mentioned a Redeemer in New York City. Uh, Austin Church Planning Network. I mean, there you know there are city-based networks now that sometimes are launched out of an individual church, but it's through that effort of that individual church collaborating with other churches that are saying, "Hey, how do we do better together to reach our city?" And it's created kind of a bit of an incubator space. You know, a lot of them actually share even residencies where there's a shared residency across different churches. Uh, so different models of doing that. Yes, there's still, I think there's still a need for like uh, national church planning movements. And, you know, you and I both, we belong to some of those. Uh, But the emphasis on city-based planting and building the ecosystem so that even if you drop a guy or a couple in, that they're not coming in just like without any kind of context. They belong to a local movement. And I think that's really important for the longevity of church planting, especially as I think, uh, and Dave, I mean, I, I think we'll continue to do the launch large model, but I also think that it'll continue to be harder and harder to do sustainable launch large models moving forward. 
in my lifetime, there's been a few, uh, I guess what we could call global changing events. Um, the financial crisis of a few years ago, the shift from modernity to postmodernism, the end of the uh, Cold War. And then in the last year or so, we've had a pandemic that has roiled the world. Um, how do you see that affecting church planning strategies, networks uh, in the U.S. and then even globally? Hmm. Yeah, that's been that's been the question, hasn't it? Uh, <laughs> there there are a couple of things that I think will we've learned uh, that will continue on. And part of this was when uh, the pandemic first hit, we we just brought tons and hundreds of pastors through a, a sixty to ninety day process of developing um, you know a, a pathway towards getting your church you know sustainable in the midst of the pandemic. And what we learned was that uh, uh, three things came to mind. One was the underutilization of technology. And again, I mean, the fact that we're doing this, uh, I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of podcasts that have been launched in the last year. And I think that's going to be uh, a new norm for, uh, you know, digital ministry. Um, but, you know, uh, for instance, Alpha, Alpha never did uh, Zoom, uh, Alpha, you know, Alpha, the... Uh, apologetic evangelistic yeah. um like they this was it took the pandemic to really force them to think about okay how do we actually pivot this uh to use technology because they were so dependent on in person and the meals and they'll continue to do that but in working with uh uh, uh alpha i also know that they're never going to stop you know uh doing digital again and so there are some realities that i think um uh, in church planting we're discovering that it's a great way to do vision casting it's a great way to build core groups it's a great way to beta test small groups before you actually launch into in person and so um there's lower barriers for people they can hop on they can be you know and so i think there's that level of technology that uh will 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 basically like um enhance the way that we've already done ministry. And then I think I have a subtle, uh, you know, I, like I'm getting a subtle glimpse into how some churches will think about uh, doing ministry in a more decentralized way. So I've never heard so much talk about like planting uh, micro churches and not just like a one-off house church, but actually thinking through strategically. As a matter of fact, I belong to a church plant right now where we're a church plant of missional communities. Uh, we don't have a regular cadence of large group gatherings, but we planted in the pandemic and we're three missional communities and we'll figure out if we deal large group gathering. But um, and then I'm working with mega churches that are actually thinking right now, how do we continue on with our centralized traditional church? But could we birth, uh, you know, a network of uh, micro churches where we're we're sustaining that and we're keeping it going? Uh, and some some really like I think uh, important conversations that are happening there, Marty, that was catalyzed really through the pandemic. I think in some ways, I don't think we'll go to, to a purely decentralized model. As a matter of fact, I still think there's a big reason for why we need to do things in a more centralized way. But I think all groups are saying that those don't need to have a bifurcation, that you can still healthily use centralized models of you know vision casting and resourcing. But then when it comes to the work of the ministry, how do we decentralize that more? And I think for those churches that have made that, um, that change in the last 12 months, we won't actually see uh, until probably at the end of the year, maybe early 22, what are the long lasting innovations that'll, that'll stay in place. So Daniel, when you when you have a group of guys that you're that you're speaking to that are are in the church planting world or considering church planting, or maybe they're pastors who want to 
church plant and they're looking out in light of all of these realities and these transitions you know what what kind of things are you telling them i i, I think you've touched on a number of things but i'd love to just know like maybe in bullet form sure, what are sure. the things that are most on your heart for these groups yeah so i'm going to give a couple layers dave um so when i'm talking to guys like you i mean and you've planted and you've pastored and so you would be in this category but also the ones that are leading church planters and leading church planting organizations, I tell them, hey, you know, uh, let's keep our heads down, let's keep working, but let's also think about 2050. Let's also think about like that next generation that we really need to tell the story of church planting to. Because the way that we've talked about the story of church planting in the last 40 years, I, I'm not, I'm not sure if that is a compelling narrative that will recruit a, a new generation of people, especially Gen Z and what they're calling Gen Alpha into church planting. Maybe it will, but I don't know. I mean, when I say the narrative, what I'm saying is that it, for a lot of people, they were they were captivated by the idea that, you know, less and less people go to church today. We need to start new churches to reach new kinds of people. And I think that that will still motivate certain people, but I don't know if that's going to motivate a vast majority of our youth that are really now, I mean, Gen Z is already first second year in college. Um, and so I don't think church attendance is going to be a huge motivating factor. So I think in our minds, those of us who lead church planning organizations, we need to continue to um, to be creatively tell the story of church planting in a way that's going to capture the next generation. Now, obviously that comes down to, you know, what does the Bible say and how do we articulate that to the next generation? Because it really begins with uh, good, solid theology, belief in the work of who Jesus is and his mission. Um, but I also think that um, if we solely rely on the narratives around uh, church decline and church attendance, that'll have less and less appeal to the next generation. To pastors who are leading churches and to church planters, um, you know, the thing that I am very mindful of is, uh, you know, there some of these categories you all are probably dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. When we talk about like multi-ethnicity and diversity, like you really have, you really have to know what you mean when you say by that. Because it used to be, especially in the 90s and early 2000s when this conversation was happening, that diversity and multi-ethnicity was about like the different shades of people that are sitting in the pews. Um, and um, it was about, it was about you know, um, quota. You know, that's what it was. You know, it was 20% of this, 10% of that. And that, that, um, that uh, definition of diversity is not, is, is not deep enough for, you know, the the um, like church attendance again, like who's sitting in the pews is not telling the stories that I think a lot of people uh, need to tell when it comes to the multi-ethnic church. Uh, you know, a few years ago, we saw an article, I think it was the Washington Post, and it was kind of, it was kind of like catalyzed when Lecrae said that he was leaving, you know, the evangelical church. And then there's several, uh, you know, articles that came out how African-Americans were leaving, you know, uh, uh, multi-ethnic churches. Uh, and a part of that is because uh, woven into multi-ethnic churches need to be heritage, uh, stories, uh, in like the theologies even, you know, not, not theology proper, like who God is so much, but how does that break down into the grassroots? And I think that there's going to be a meaningful belonging that pastors need to be able to create amongst their leadership team so they can have a diverse team where people feel like they meaningfully belong. And that's going to be, that's going to set the precedent for how other people in the congregation knows how they know how to belong. And that's a, that's a, to me, Dave, I think that's a huge thing because 
uh, our census tells us that by 2040, the United States will be uh, will have no majority race um, for the first time in its founding. And so, which is different. We go back to uh, 1980s when Rick Warren started Saddleback Church. Um, in 1980s, it was still United States was still 85% white. And we're saying by 2040, uh, you know, you will not have a majority racial demographic. So these are the reasons why we need to go deeper when we talk about multi-ethnic belonging. So these are some things I'll talk to people about. That is a remarkable shift from the 1980s to 2040s from 85% to no majority. That's remarkable. Sure is. That's, gonna, that's going to, so I asked my previous question out of sequence, but I see now that it's providential because Dave's uh, question leads into this one or your answer leads into this one. Um, there, that's going to create a lot of fear, I think, in a lot of people, uh, that shifting demographic. It already does in some ways. How is this going to affect church planting? How's it going to affect churches and denominations that are only accustomed to a supermajority demographic situation? And now they have to try to, I don't know if recruit is the right word, but they have to try to align with people who can plant churches in this new reality. How's that going to work? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a huge question because... When we think about church planting skills, uh, and I think about, you know, we're all involved in assessment and church planter profiles, and and we look at all those, and they tend to be built around, like, high-capacity leadership, vision casting, you know, ability to communicate, uh, lead a team, stuff that you'll need. Like, you'll, th- those, we won't stop needing that. There is one skill that I, we don't really articulate well, but I think increasingly um, is going to be necessary. And that is the ability to empathize, so to hear stories. Um, I know that sounds counterintuitive. It almost doesn't seem productive to those of us who are especially type A. Um, but um, in, you know, we call it biblical reconciliation or racial reconciliation. Um, there is, for every church planter that I know that goes into an urban space that's, that's diverse, um, if they don't know how to create listening communities, they are almost always not effective in actually reaching the, the people that are there. They might be effective in reaching the transients that come in and out, you know, that are kind of like, you know, they're, they're transplanting there and they're there for career. They're maybe the uppity folks and they kind of, you know, are more upperly mobile. But when it comes to like the long lasting, like uh, indigenous person in that community, it's almost like you, you're not able to truly reach them if you don't know how to create, I'll call them listening communities, but basically that's that neutral ground space where you actually learn, interact. And you, what, you know, what we say in kind of the missiological, you know, world is that you're actually just, you're learning to contextualize, but contextualize uh, means more than just like being able to read a situation. It's deep listening and deep empathy and deep learning. Um, Diane Laneberg, who's a psychologist and she studies, uh, missions movements and those kinds of things. So it's a very unique kind of blend. And she actually says that trauma is the mission field of the 21st century. Uh, she says that because of number one, because of the number of like uh, m- migrant groups and diaspora, they're having to leave. Well, they are, they're more uh, you know, people on the move right now today than there ever been in history. But also number two is the, you know, the effects of our, our cities and the decay in our cities. And so Learning to understand trauma, I think, is going to be huge. Uh, it's part of the reason why the Salvation Army became 
such a, a force when, uh, when it started because it, it engaged communities with empathy, but it also brought in the gospel and planted churches. So um, it's what Ronnie Starks rise, writes about when he talks about the rise of the first century church where they were on the front lines uh, you know, in their pandemics, and they were bringing in people. They were empathetic to other people's issues. And I think, uh, I don't think that the church is not doing that. But I will say this, and we all belong to you know, some of the same circles. I don't think any of our assessment processes actually are trying to capture any of that. No, not, not at all. I, I think that uh, they, they, they bend towards leadership and, and entrepreneurial skills and actually minimize that. And and then church planters, you know, tend to go out unaware that they're actually being called to pastoral ministry, where listening and being sympathetic to people is an enormous part of being effective as a pastor. So, That's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I, I am, I'm a huge champion, you know, if, if people use the fivefold typology, you know, we've been huge champions of like, you know, apostolic ministry and prophetic ministry, those kinds of things. And maybe, you know, your listeners, they may not use that typology. We've kind of almost kind of made the shepherd teacher almost kind of like this, you know, embarrassing. But no, but the reality is that it's the it's the fivefold ministry that Christ has given to the church. Like we need all of that. And if we marginalize any one of those gifts that Jesus has given, uh, then we, we, we have somewhat of an anemic church planning movement. And I think that um, the pandemic, again, I think in some ways has called us to be a more empathetic church, not just because of COVID, but all of the issues that have happened in the last 12 months. Daniel, since we're kind of right in this space on multi-ethnicity, um, I want to ask you a more, probably a more delicate question, um, and, and we'll make this the last one. But, um, you know, as you've been on Twitter lately, you've been talking a lot and appropriately about um, violence against Asian Americans, you, you yourself being an Asian American. Um, and, and so I'm curious, like when you're, when you're asked about this, how are you interpreting and explaining what's happening? Or, or, or maybe to put it another way, you know, like what, is, what is your gut response uh, when you see these, these stories and, mm. And then I and then I want to get your thoughts on like okay, how would you? What should we be doing in response to that as well? So you yeah. go anywhere you want with that. Yeah. Well, first of all, Dave, uh, thanks for. I mean, even a couple of weeks ago, you emailed just to just to check on me, and I really appreciate that because, um, you know, I, I think uh, 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 that meant a lot to me personally, but I also thought that that was indicative of what uh, I hope is happening, and that is that. Uh, Asian American issues are becoming more visible. Um, and it's not that it's been, you know, some of these issues that are exacerbated by the pandemic, um, it's not that they weren't happening before. United States has a very unique history of Asian American immigration. Uh, there have been issues, you know, that spent, stem back to the Chinese Immigration Act in the late 1900s to, you know, uh, all the effects of the Korean War. Uh, it's very complicated. If you think about like even the wars that uh, United States has participated in Asia, you know, my parents came from Laos and that was a war that was, you know, it was a, somewhat of an unknown war. It was fought simultaneously alongside the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War was televised. Uh, Vietnam or uh, Laos was not. 
it wasn't until 19 uh, in the 1990s when Clinton was president that he declassified the documents, and then they actually just entitled it the Secret War in Laos. And so, if you can imagine, just kind of drilling it down to my personal story, you know, like my parents came to the United States, nobody knew why they were just here. They kind of just showed up. They didn't, they, you know, they weren't the Vietnamese, but they, you know, uh, but they were a result of this other war that was happening in Laos and. And now they named the war and it's called the secret war. So it's kind of like the, the layers of invisibility for certain groups of people are very deep. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think the series of these events that have been happening since the pandemic, you know, that have been exacerbated by certain kind of rhetoric and language, uh, the rise of uh, violence documented, you know, over 4,000 cases documented related within the pandemic of violence against Asian Americans. Uh, and then the, in some ways, kind of a, almost like a, a very visible climax with the Atlanta murders, you know, and regardless how, how people interpret the motives of that shooter, um, I think it would, it put on display at least, you know, as the front lines of, of, uh, of the news networks that, um, you know, there, there were, you know, Asian Americans who were on the receiving end of violence. And I think in some ways, um, you know, uh, the feeling of invisibility is 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 you know is starting to to go away. We're starting to feel like okay, like we can we can actually have meaningful conversation. Like it doesn't have to be framed around just a black white binary. You know, where I think a lot of times the racial conversation, even in our entry point into that, was okay. Where in this where in the spectrum do we fit? You know. It's like there's a black-white binary, a long history. So where where do we insert ourselves as you know Asian Americans and, and even uh, Latinos? And I think that for the first time, at least for a lot of people, they're seeing how complex and how nuanced the uh, the issues are. And I think it's without even being prescriptive of what we should do. I think it's just important to acknowledge that this is a complex thing because if you don't acknowledge how complex it is, then you actually hide people's stories. But if you acknowledge how complex it is, then it allows others who don't fit cleanly the black white binary to actually then insert their stories and actually say, you know, this is how, this is how we have felt. And I think that's especially important for gospel people. Cause I think this is a, this is so important for us. You know, I mean, I don't care about the CRT debates, the social justice debate, none of that stuff. I think what's important for us is that if we have to understand the way that Jesus um, brought us good news is he became like one of us. Like he, he literally gave up, Paul says in Philippians chapter two, his rights as God. He gave that up and became one of us. You know, he died a criminal's death, became a slave uh, so that we could have life. And we, you, you can't do that incarnational. You can't be a missionary if you don't know people's stories, you know. And so this is why it's sometimes, uh, you know, a little bit dangerous when we do multi-ethnic church and then we bring in people who are different from us. And it happens, you know, on both ends. It's not just white people that do this. You know, other people do this as well. And then there's a, there's, a, there's a strong assimilation process to become like majority culture. And uh, people will get disoriented. As a matter of fact, Corey Little Edwards just released a, a very important piece on Christianity Today a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she talked about the myth of the multi-ethnic church. 
And it's because if the stories continue to go uh, uh, unnoticed and unheard, then the uh, the uh, the diversity that we have is actually you know uh, not meaningful. And I think, Dave, what we're seeing right now is it's allowing that uh, conversation to be more complex, which it needs to be, but that allows more people to speak into it. And a lot of people, like Asian Americans, have been waiting to speak into it. Yeah, it's and it seems like the complexity of it calls us to to listen more and uh, listen more effectively. And, and that's where I think, you know, for, for our listeners, we shouldn't be um, uncomfortable about asking these questions or moving into areas where um, that, that are going to race and going to some of the social polarities today, because I, I think what it does is it provides us an opportunity to hear and listen. If we're going to be effective at church planting, if we're going to be effective at incarnating in our communities, it's going to be because we are we are meeting folks where they are, and that's right. that begins with understanding them and understanding their world. And, and you you put that it's, in a great way, Daniel. It's huge, and it's and it's biblical. This was the issue of Acts chapter fifteen, the Jerusalem Council. How do we work through those dynamics of you know you're not of us, but now you're part of us? You know that's that the Jew Gentile dynamic. And when they were able to embrace that, you know what, like you need to be you, like you just need to be you, like you can't, you can't inherit like so much of us, you know, take the core tenets of the gospel, who Jesus is, and you be you. I mean, even the, even the center of, of the Christian world at the point went from Jerusalem, you know, to Antioch. I mean, you think about, and it took Antioch to make Christianity really, number one, to label it Christianity. But it also took Antioch to be a global missions movement. And Antioch was very completely different from Jerusalem. But they had to figure out what it meant to belong to each other while at the same time maintaining your own personal stories. And I think that's uh, that's part of our cultural moment right now. And uh, I think I think we're going to do it. I think the Holy Spirit's guiding it. It's not going to be easy, clean. I think it's okay to shout at each other. It's okay to, you know, try to get your voice heard. But at the end of the day, I think we need to see each other as gospel uh, people, sisters and brothers. And if we do that, I think the mission is going to move forward. Thank you for listening to Launch, the GCC podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, why not take a moment to do that in your favorite podcast app? Also, rate and review the podcast when you get a moment. That helps us with search results and recommend us to your friends, maybe other pastors that you know who will benefit from the content from this podcast. Also, don't forget to check out our website if you haven't done that already. It's gccollective.org. That's gccollective.org. And there's a lot of helpful information. There's articles. There's how you can join the GCC, whether a church planter or an existing church, and plenty of other content that will help you grow spiritually and encourage you in your leadership journey.